Well, good morning, everyone. With a quick word, Road Change, I am here with you live. So this is great to see all of your faces, which I can't see right now, but it's great to be here with you. Uh, hi, everyone in the multi-purpose room. Love you guys and all the families and friends at home. We love you guys, too. We're opening up the book of Hosea this morning. So if find that quickly, book of Hosea. And if you have a little trouble with that, it's just after Daniel, right before Joel. Does that help you? Okay, book of Hosea. And we're continuing in the stories of grace. Now, let me ask you a question. If you knew at the beginning of your marriage, just before you were about to be married, that your spouse was going to be unfaithful to you, would you still get married? I know, that's the kind of question that you weren't expecting to be asked by your pastor on a Sunday morning. But now that we're over the shock of the question, would you marry the person knowing that they're going to break your heart? I've been involved in a lot of premarital counseling over the years as a pastor, and I've got to tell you, I don't have any empirical evidence for this, but I think that the answer to the question is a resounding no. Indeed, I surprised a couple of people this week randomly by asking them that question, and they immediately said no to me and then furrowed their face just at the thought of it. You see, there are plenty of circumstances that we could live with upon entering a marriage. I've heard of situations where one spouse is terminally ill and the other spouse says, I don't care how much time we have together, I'm still going to get married to you. In fact, I was forced at one point to watch A Walk to Remember, so I've definitely seen that scenario play out. Uh, you also hear of examples of people getting married despite economic conditions going into the marriage, but unfaithfulness? Please, not even a chance. We're not going to suffer the indignity of that kind of betrayal. And if you've ever lived with the pain of it, it hurts. It hurts bad. Well, this morning we're going to read quite a shocking story of grace. It's a story that involves, um, you know, just deep betrayal, unrequited love, but also incredible grace. It's a personal object lesson, which actually is more like a, a reality TV show as we watch it play out. It's the story where God asks Hosea to marry Gomer. And before the marriage even begins, God says that Gomer is going to break your heart, she's going to shatter it in pieces, and she's going to step on the pieces. But I still want you to go ahead with the marriage. Now, why would he ask him to do that? Well, we're going to see this morning as we pick up the story. Parents at home, real quick, by the way, this uh, Bible reading does have some words that you may not want younger kids to hear. Uh, I will be reading them this morning because it is God's word and we will be reading it. So just take note of that. And we're going to pick up looking at Hosea's marriage. Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take for yourself a wife. 
You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, we wouldn't take that expression to the full extent of the expression. Certainly, there are meaningful things that can be said, said through words, and we've seen bad pictures that don't communicate anything. But a good picture really can do a good job of conveying a powerful message. In fact, God the master teacher, the greatest teacher of all time, uses analogies, pictures, illustrations, and object lessons all over the Bible to convey his revelation to us. Now, marriage is a picture that we often see used of our relationship to God in the Bible and of our salvation. In both of these realities, the relationship and the salvation are greater realities than the picture. In fact, it takes a lot of pictures to convey those realities. Uh, when you think about salvation, you see in the scriptures this idea of new, new birth, which is a picture conveying the idea that we have been spiritually made alive. When Jesus died on the cross, our once dead souls have been made alive. We looked last week at the picture of adoption, which talks about all of the benefits that we receive when we come into a right relationship with God. Now, here's the deal. Some of the analogies can actually seem to contradict one another. And why is that? Like, for example, it talks about us being married to God, but at the same time, a son or daughter of God, right? That doesn't quite seem to make sense. Well, Michael Barrett says this. He says, Truth trumps analogy. Whereas analogies may appear paradoxical, truth is not. So when the Lord in one place says he will marry Israel, and then in another refers to Israel as his son, there is no contradiction, just different analogies. We also shouldn't expect analogies to be exhaustive or an item-by-item correspondence. Uh, an analogy just points to something, right? A similarity. So this means that when Hosea's prophecy says our relationship to God is like a marriage, it's pointing to something about marriage, but certainly not everything about marriage. Uh, what, what, what is it pointing to? Well, let me be the first to tell you that it's not pointing to long walks on the beach with God or the romantic relationship of marriage. No, the analogy, the marriage analogy, points us to the idea of covenant. Covenant. In Ezekiel 16a, it reinforces this spiritual point when God says to Israel, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, because you are mine. Now, this covenant relationship of marriage takes the relationship to a different level than other relationships can go. When Katie and I were expressing our vows together, and if you have expressed marriage vows, you're expressing the same thing, we said two things to one another. First, we said that we would be exclusive in the relationship. The idea is that I am not and she is not going to open our hearts to the romantic inclinations of another person. We are going to keep that reserved to one another. We also express the vow of permanence for the marriage. And by God's help, we're essentially saying that we'll stay married despite the hardships that will come, not may, 
will come, such as things like financial difficulty, health, seasons of disagreement. In fact, when we looked at Mephibosheth's story of grace, didn't we see something about covenant in marriage? We said that covenant protects the security of love, not the intensity of love. The intensity of love is something that we have to work at extra hard. So here's the deal with covenant. Most importantly, covenant promises our deepest level of fidelity to another. Now, not much time passes in marriage when we realize that just because we say we're going to be faithful or just because we say we're going to make the marriage permanent doesn't mean that that doesn't involve work too. It takes a lot of work. And there can be a lot of pain that comes along when that doesn't happen. And we take a look at Hosea's story, his pain. Listen again to God's instructions, or listen to God's instruction to him. And this is verses 2 of three, two and 3 of chapter 1. He says, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, isn't that strong language? Sometimes we read words in the Bible and we feel a little shocked when we hear the words that are expressed in the Bible. But here's the deal with the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat life. It doesn't hide the underbelly. It doesn't sweep things away with nice euphemisms. The Bible gives us powerful language for the realities of life. As I have studied this passage, I do not think that God is talking about Gomer's current occupation. I think that God is referring to a character defect in her heart that would manifest itself later in the marriage. Because God knows the future with such certainty that those events could be spoken as if they are present. They will come about. He knows the character of a person with such certainty so that even if they have not already committed an act, when he speaks to the character of a person, they will. And he says to him, Hosea, I want you to marry someone who will betray you. It is in her heart. Your personal pain is meant to serve as an object lesson for the pain that I feel. Now, the, par- the marriage quickly parallels the pain that God feels. As you read verses 4 to 9, you see that Gomer gives birth to three children. And the naming of these children grows in intensity along the way. Now, if you aren't reading closely, you'll miss the tragedy of the events that are as they are unfolding. Now, the first son, Jezreel, verse 3, says that she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea, of course, look at that pronoun, him. But the next two children are not identified as Hosea's children. Look at verse 6. 
She conceived again and bore a daughter. Hosea was called to name this daughter No Mercy. And then you look at verse 8. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. This child is named Not My Peace People. So while the Bible never comes out and explicitly says these are not Hosea's children, uh, Gomer has had these children with another man, the silence of this situation is what is powerful. This is happening right before our eyes. And now the question we have to ask is, how is Hosea supposed to respond to this depth of betrayal that he's experiencing? I mean, this had to be a long time, didn't it? We're talking about multiple children being born. Day after day, fighting for the relationship, trying to make things work out, but it's not working out, obviously. Can I ask you a question? How do you feel, or what are your thoughts on the emotion of jealousy? Jealousy. Is it all about control? Is it always unhealthy? Now granted, it's a loaded word. It often describes pretty negative connotations, doesn't it? Like pettiness and paranoia and covetousness and there's plenty of context where that would be inappropriate but the bible says that god is jealous you look at exodus chapter 20 verse 5 for i the lord your god am a jealous god uh, deuteronomy 4 24 for the lord your god is a consuming fire a what jealous god clearly can't be an inappropriate, sinful emotion. It must be an emotion that has a healthy aspect or a healthy expression and an unhealthy expression. Of course, the unhealthy is the paranoia. It's the suspicion. But the healthy form of jealousy comes when there is such a deep love and deep fidelity for the relationship that you would defend the relationship. You would want to protect the relationship. Indeed, a marriage is broken if we don't care to protect the exclusivity of the relationship. I remember a, a blog or an article that I'd read a couple of years ago, and why I remember this, I don't quite know. It must have just been the shock value of what I had read. In it, a wife was essentially bragging that she had told her husband that he can be unfaithful to the marriage. Uh, he had come and asked for intimacy, and she said she didn't feel like that. So she says, you have a free pass. And he says, what do you mean a free pass? I mean, you can go out tonight, do whatever you want to do. I don't want to know about it. You have a free pass. Friends, that is a broken relationship. No jealousy indicates little to no commitment. I hope you can see it. Does God ask us to offer him our whole heart because God is paranoid and petty? I mean, does God just need to be a little bit more open-minded, inclusive? Does God just need to be, uh, or should he say to us, I don't care what you do tonight. You have a free pass, go for it. Here's the thing, if God treated our relationship to him like that, that would mean that God is not invested in the relationship. But God is 
deeply invested in the relationship. So God's jealousy then is born out of God's deep love for the relationship. So the problem in this situation is not God. It's us. It's our sinful natures, our hearts that are prone to wander like Gomer. The Bible usually expresses our our waywardness in a couple of different ways. It speaks to it as idolatry or spiritual adultery or loving the world. You'll see that in the New Testament. Now, some of those analogies we don't quite relate to. I don't know about you, but last time I checked as a Westerner, I've never felt tempted to bow a knee before an object of wood or stone. Just haven't. But the deal is that idolatry is alive and well still. Because in reality, an idol is anything upon which we base our self-worth or value or to which we devote ourselves without question or restraint. John Calvin said it like this, our hearts are idol factories. It's, It's giving myself Uh, being pleased with anything lesser than God, giving that the place of priority in my heart. Let me ask you, does God have your whole heart? Or is it your divided heart? Or maybe sometimes not even any of your heart? I was once discussing the need for marriage counseling in a conversation. And marriage counseling is important. There's a lot of trauma that can occur in a marriage. Uh, We've, if we've been married, we understand this all too well. But what marriage counseling can do is it can come alongside people while they're kind of stuck in the relationship and and an outside party and voice can ask good questions and extend good counsel. But one of the things that was said, a salient point in this conversation I was having about marriage counseling was this. It'll stick with me forever. The idea was this. Um, If either spouse, when couples are coming in for marriage counseling, involved with a third party, the marriage counseling is pointless. Why? Because the unfaithful spouse is always pulled in two directions. Marriage counseling takes hard work. And if there is an exception clause, people tend not to want to do the hard work. So here's the message that we're seeing in the book of Hosea. It's pretty clear. God is looking at a people, the nation of Israel, that is pulled in two directions. And no matter how much God comes and extends his counsel, because of the pull upon the relationship, they will never come back. In fact, as you go into Hosea chapter 2, the scorned husband God says, look, I refuse to live with the pretense of this marriage. You know, if you want to play around, if you want to be unfaithful to the marriage, well then, you know, you're going to have to go fully in that direction, and you're going to have to experience the consequences of that. And even the emotions of jealousy come out. It sounds so final, doesn't it? He says, as he's naming these children, this one's to be named no mercy, and this one's to be called not my people. So final, so full. And yet, and yet, as the story moves on, in Hosea, 
God reveals that he's not finished. In fact, as you look at Hosea 2.1, the names change from no mercy and not my people to mercy and my people again. It turns out that because God's grace is so powerful, what has been lost in judgment can be restored in grace. And here we see a picture of that in Gomer's redemption. Go to Hosea chapter 3 now, and we're going to look at the first three verses. The Lord said to me, go again, Love a woman who is loved by another man is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Now, in a single word, bought, we learn how far Gomer has fallen. What exactly happened, we don't know. We don't know all of the story. In fact, sometimes those things just aren't our business. We just know that a lot has occurred. Uh, that 15 shekels in the scriptures points to the idea that she's being auctioned off like a piece of property. Now just imagine the scene as it unfolds. Gomer is being led up to the slave bach. And people in the crowd, they turn around and they see off to the periphery that Hosea is standing there. And, you know, the gossip starts spreading around the crowd. Oh, he's here to see her get hers. Oh, I bet you he just can't wait to see what happens to her. This is going to be uh, his moment of vindication. But then the bidding begins. And to the crowd's shock... As people are beginning to bid on Gomer, Hosea loudly and proudly makes his bid. And he continues to bid for her until he's the lone voice bidding for her. And he purchases her freedom for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Now, you might think to yourself, well, maybe he's doing this just so he can have some control over her, just so that he can get back to her, but that's not what his intention is, is it? As you paraphrase verse 3, you see that Hosea is really just looking for a real marriage, a new marriage. Let me read this paraphrase to you. I have bought you, and I want you to live with me. I want you to be faithful to me, and I promise you that whether you're faithful to me or not, I will be faithful to you. Friends, that is a picture of the biblical theological concept of redemption, a picture of what Christ has done for us. Let me read this to you in Wayne, uh, Wayne Grudem's definition. Redemption is Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of ransom. Now, that ransom price, we understand, it was a high price for Christ. It was much more than 15 shekels of silver. Paul tells us what it was as he's speaking to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 about how their love towards their wife should be sacrificial. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Likewise, he talks to this love in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, that's the kind of truth that you need to let sink into your soul. I told you before, I didn't want to just get up and give you a multiple series lecture on all of the intricacies of grace, defining terms and unpacking it piecemeal in that way, because grace is not meant to be studied in that way. Grace is meant to be seen and known and felt and savored. When you see a picture of what grace is, it sinks that grace down into the depths of your soul. You're supposed to feel like Gomer in this story, helpless. How am I going to be saved? And then God in Jesus comes and He pays the ultimate price of redemption by doing what? Laying His life down on the cross. Shedding His precious blood for you. And the more that you apprehend that and appropriate it into your life, the more that you will know the joy of God's love. Do you know that joy? Do you live in that joy? You're supposed to, believer. As we bring this to a close, it is true that recovering from an affair is a great challenge for a marriage. I mean, it comes with ambivalence, uncertainty, but when two parties say to themselves, we are willing to commit to this. A lot of good can come. There can be the reward of a new type of marriage. I've heard it said like this when couples are working through that dynamic. You've got to think of that marriage before as an old marriage, but this marriage you're about to work on is a new marriage. As you look at Hosea, this is the type of dynamic that God has offered to everyone. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are offered a new marriage with God. I want you to look at that marriage and and see that there are certain gifts that God has promised to bring into the marriage. Hosea chapter 2 verses 18 through 20. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, uh, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." Commentator Derek Kidner says this of that passage, the word betrothed gives a note of eagerness and warmth to what is promised. It makes it a new beginning with all of the freshness of first love rather than the weary work of patching up all of the differences. Now, isn't that better? That, that reminder of first love fresh love. Do you remember the first time you were in love? It's a great emotion, isn't it? And the word betrothed also points to that period, that engagement period before the marriage. And a part of that in ancient Israel involved the giving of gifts. And so God promises through the prophet Hosea 
that when we come into a relationship with him through Jesus, that he brings certain gifts into the relationship. In fact, five gifts. One being righteousness. The quality of being right in God's eyes. And that's in your character, in your conduct, and in your attitude. Two is justice, meaning to make right. It means living in right relationships with those around us, in right relationship to God, to the people around us, and even into the created order. Steadfast love deals with the constancy of that love. That love will never be broken. It will continue on in perpetuity. Compassion, faithfulness, These are all the gifts that God brings into this new marriage. And he's saying as he's bringing these gifts that my commitment to you in this marriage is that I will change your heart. I will make you new. You see, we tend to get married to someone because of who they are. But God marries us despite who we are. We are fallen creatures. God must change the tendency in the human heart to wreck the marriage. He must change us from the inside out. So the question is, is do you open your heart to God for that work? You see, church, this morning God is here. He's right here. He's right here with us. He's right here speaking to you if you're at home. He's in here in the room with you. He's waiting to transform your heart. He's waiting for you to run to him with a a reckless sort of pursuits, to experience his grace, to experience the depths of his love. And the question before us each and every day is, am I opening my heart to him wholly to receive that love and then to become a vessel of that love? Friends, That's the message in Hosea. God loves us despite our wayward tendency. His grace pursues us despite the habit of the heart to walk away from him. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, this morning as we looked at your word in Hosea, We are just so grateful to you that you are a pursuing God. Lord, um, this story of Hosea pursuing Gomer is reminiscent of another spiritual analogy that you made, the prodigal son. Lord, the son who said to the father, I don't need you. I'm good. Just give me my inheritance and let me go off and enjoy life. And of course, the, the father who waits day after day for the son to return. And instead of receiving the son back with condemnation, receives the son back with joy. Lord, this morning as um, each one here is processing your scriptures, I pray that in their hearts that they would see that they need you, that they are loved, and that your grace is beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.